Hi, everyone. Happy Liberation Day, and welcome to the Years of Lead Pod, where we talk about all the political intrigue, economic turmoil, and social chaos that characterized the period of Italian history known as the Years of Lead, roughly from 1967 to 1982. We do some bonus episodes here looking at the background of that period, and this episode is going to look at the downfall of Mussolini's social republic along with some of its implications. For today, Liberation Day, April 25th, I'm making this episode a free one, and then after that, it'll be a bonus for subscribers. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Patreon, like the podcast, give it a good review on whatever platform you prefer, and do keep listening. Thanks very much. As Benito Mussolini gazed over the rugged mountains of Italy's eastern Abruzzo region, a tear started to form in his eye. He was, by all accounts, a sad bastard, who at times wished to end it all. On July 9, 1943, the Allies had landed in Sicily, leading to unmitigated disaster for the fascist regime. Waves of workers' resistance took place, and the war was pretty much over for Italy. But Hitler would not let Mussolini surrender. Disgraced by his failure, the fascist Grand Council that ruled over Italy convened to force Mussolini to share war powers with the king, Victor Emmanuel III. On July 24th, the Grand Council heard arguments for and against the resolution, with Mussolini's former ally, his son-in-law, Count Galeazzo Ciano, making the decisive move against him. It is said that Mussolini was toppled in that moment, and simply went to work the next day as though nothing had happened. This is a funny story, but not quite true. He actually went to the residence of the King of Italy to discuss the outcome. The two exchanged words, and the king simply had him arrested. There's good reason for this, of course. Over the previous four years, Mussolini's powers had declined apace. He'd lost the war in Greece pathetically, had his imperial ambitions stamped out in Africa, and his party was in ruins. In August 1941, his beloved and flamboyant son Bruno died in an airplane accident, and he was genuinely heartbroken. In a bleak and morbid book, he wrote, in which he discourses with his dead son, Benito wrote, quote, Just one drop of the blood that will arise from your lacerated temples and runs down your pale face is worth more than all my works, present, past, and future. By the time of his arrest, Mussolini had an ulcer that virtually immobilized him, causing him to vomit regularly, limiting his eating, and destroying his famous bravado. Amid all Mussolini's failures, the Germans had imposed their will on Italy, rendering Il Duce a veritable pawn in their wartime ambitions. The Grand Council was afraid that the Nazis would find and free the incarcerated Mussolini to continue their war effort, so Il Duce was sent from place to place, ultimately to the highest mountain in a remote part of southeast Italy. In place of Mussolini, the king, Vittorio Emanuele, appointed a military man named Pietro Badoglio, who ruled over a difficult scenario between a host of reconstructed anti-fascist parties and a king who they largely opposed. Badoglio gaining power must have been a huge slap in the face to Mussolini, who saw him as the source of many of his problems. In fact, Badoglio was such a failure as the Italian commander in Ethiopia that Mussolini had fired him from his job. 
Indeed, the Italian campaign in Ethiopia was marked by chemical weapons use and genocidal policies, so the person leading much of Italy now was clearly a coward and a failed fascist. By early August, two days before the second anniversary of Bruno Mussolini's death, the diplomat Marquis Blasco de Ayetta could say, Fascism in Italy is extinct. Italy turned red overnight. This was an incredibly naive pronouncement, but the fascist party was indeed dissolved in most of Italy overnight. Some pre-fascist parties returned, and new parties emerged to assert themselves and convince the king to negotiate terms of surrender with the Allies, ultimately pushing through an armistice in early September. But the Germans had a heavy military presence in Italy, and those who signed the armistice knew they'd immediately become traitors. In a supreme act of cowardice, the king and Badoglio hastened to flee the country without giving any orders to the military to fight against the Nazis. As a result, the Germans immediately captured massive amounts of material and around 600,000 Italian troops who were promptly sent in cattle cars to concentration camps. Meanwhile, Mussolini sat in the, quote, highest prison in the world, as he called it, and left a chronicle of sad bastarding, identifying himself with Jesus Christ and listening in taciturn silence to the denunciations over the radio. After hearing about Badoglio's armistice with the Allies, which called for Mussolini's transfer to Allied custody, Il Duce slid his wrists in despair, but the security guard found him and stopped the bleeding. The following day, on September the 12th, the Nazis sent a team to extricate Il Duce. Codenamed Operation Oak, this effort was led by German General Karl Student, with the assistance of two other officers. It involved 50 armored cars, nearly a dozen tanks, and numerous trucks transporting over 100 soldiers to Mussolini's makeshift jail. After the soldiers took over the resort without resistance, three planes flew past, loosing nine gliders, which then landed at the hotel, allowing armed parachuters to jump out and lie in the prone position. It was all really dramatic and convincing, but the Italian force guarding Mussolini had been put on notice, and many didn't want to fight. An SS officer with the Nazi force entered the hotel, smashed the radio with his pistol butt, raced up the stairs, and threw open the door to Mussolini's suite, proclaiming, Duce, the Fuhrer sent me to free you. The dictator was then put on a plane to leave, wearing what one guard called, quote, the smile of a man freed by a foreign hand and aware of having drawn the country into the abyss. The plane barely made it off the cliff, dropping precipitously before finally stabilizing and taking Mussolini on his way, which would ultimately find him in Germany with his savior Adolf Hitler. For his part, Mussolini was only getting worse. Hitler had admired Mussolini, but now viewed him as a mere pawn. If Mussolini sat out the rest of the war as desired, Hitler told him that Milan, Turin, and Genoa would all be completely destroyed. Though a notorious liar, there was reason to take Hitler at his word. While Mussolini and Hitler met for a bro-down, Italian and German soldiers got into a skirmish in the Mediterranean island of Cephalonia. The Italians of the Acqui Division were trying to avoid being sent to the camps, but ultimately surrendered due to the Germans' superior air power. Out of the total force of 12,000 Italian troops on the island, 1,250 were killed in combat and a full 4,750 were executed by the Nazis after the fight. 
Another 4,000 surrendered and died after the ships they were sent away on hit mines. It was one of the worst singular atrocities of the entire war. As German troops occupied Rome and promptly began looting and killing at will, the somewhat reluctant Mussolini devised a plan for establishing a new fascist state in northern Italy, which had not yet been captured by the Allies. The old system failed because of human error involved in top-down administration, Mussolini insisted. His new country would be called the Italian Social Republic and would involve the government from the bottom up, but with Il Duce as the figurehead. Mussolini returned to establish the Social Republic on September 25th, with its capital at Gargano, on the lugubrious Lake Garda, but it failed before it started. By the time Mussolini set up shop in his new capital, Hitler had annexed five provinces of northern Italy into Austria, while the Croatian fascist regime took significant parts of three other provinces. This would have satisfied the pan-German ultranationalists, who always had their eye on the old Habsburg territories in Lombardy, Venetia, and it made Mussolini look like a fool, forever trusting that Nazis' territorial ambitions wouldn't ultimately bite off substantial portions of fascist Italy. While Mussolini's new dictatorship fired off directives from its press office in Salo, down the road from his villa, few people took much notice and officials looted what they could of the state's coffers before the Nazis got their own greedy mitts on them. Indeed, Mussolini's so-called social republic was given the name the Republic of Salo because that's all it was, a government based on paper and not in reality. But the Nazis were an even bigger problem as far south as Rome as the spectacle of Nazi soldiers robbing people at gunpoint, stealing cars and bikes, and forcing themselves into homes became commonplace. 120 tons, yes, 120 tons of gold made its way to the Austrian border. Thousands of sections of train tracks were removed and sent to Germany, and metals and resources were looted wholesale. Even the Italian military's horses were confiscated. If Mussolini was increasingly reviled, Hitler was hated even more. But Il Duce still controlled the richest part of Italy, from Milan and Turin to the Po River Valley to the ports of Genoa and Venice. At the same time, the word rich has to be qualified because the Nazis were siphoning off three quarters of industrial production, such as it was. Shops boarded up their windows and opened at odd hours, partly because there was nothing to sell and nobody to buy anything anyway. Inflation was soaring, most products and services were strictly limited, and foodstuffs were almost non-existent, except for in the informal sector. Meanwhile, Allied bombings were cutting a swathe through northern cities like Milan, where 200,000 people lost housing as a result. In total, Mussolini's new government presided over 17.2 million impoverished and desperate people in a country of 44 million who increasingly viewed him with implacable rage. There are even signs that Mussolini himself was questioning the continued supremacy of fascism, as he objected to Hitler's call to name Mussolini's new state the Italian Fascist Republic, insisting that fascism belonged to the past, and the new social republic must incorporate more than just the hardcore followers. However, Mussolini may have simply been addressing the reality of fascism's unpopularity. When Roman officials put out a call for a new fascist militia, only 15 people came out. 
In areas of Italy, liberated by the Allies, three central anti-fascist parties emerged as the Democratizza Cristiania, the Partito Comunista Italiana, and the Partito Socialista Italiana. These parties set up the Committee of National Liberation, which issued an order for mass insurrection in autumn 1943. They worked directly with the Allies, often supporting rearguard action against fascists and Nazis. In northern Italy, they created a force called Committee of National Liberation in Upper Italy, which helped manage both workers' actions and partisan mobilizations. The northern partisans assembled based on political factions, with the communists deploying the country's liberal nationalist history by calling themselves the Garibaldi Brigades, and the others developing different groupings as well. In one early battle on September 25th, disbanded soldiers from the fascist military joined with 1,200 men from Tirama in a forest, capturing a German major and fighting a three-day battle in which they lost six men to the Germans' 57. Some 35,000 women fought with the partisans, whose numbers ran up to 100,000 in total, depending on the source. Spontaneous action in the early months was also essential to the insurrectionary strategy. Two days after Mussolini's return to Italy on September 27th, the citizens of Naples revolted against the Nazi occupation, killing German troops, seizing weapons, and engaging in partisan combat within the guts of the city. Nazis began destroying homes, buildings, and infrastructure, bringing in tanks to quell the uprising. But partisans used cannons and mines to destroy several tanks, immobilizing the others. On their way out of the city, the Nazis ignominiously destroyed the historical archives. This was surely one of the darkest times in Italian history, as the German and Italian authorities entered into a process of one-upping the other in terms of brutality and cruelty. For the Nazi occupiers, the Italian fascist modes of interrogation appeared surprising in their malevolence, but nothing could surpass the inhumanity of the Nazis clearing the Jewish ghetto of Rome. The Germans under Major Herbert Kepler had demanded an immense quantity of gold from the Jews of Rome, and faith leaders worked assiduously to comply. However, Kepler's Nazis refused to grant a receipt or admit the sufficient amount had been provided proceeding anyway with the terrible plan to eradicate the Jews of Rome. From October 16th to the 18th, the Nazis seized control of the ghetto and rounded up its inhabitants from babies to the elderly. Neither Mussolini nor the Pope uttered a word of criticism or protest, although the Vatican did provide sanctuary to more than 4,000 Jews. At one point, the Red Cross offered food and medical aid to Jews packed into freight cars and dying. The Nazis refused, but were persuaded by a group of fascist militiamen who threatened to start shooting. Mussolini's despotic regime had been increasingly anti-Semitic, but the Nazi terror that descended on Italy made it much worse. The next month, factory workers at the Fiat Mirafiori plant in Turin went on strike, shocking everyone, including the communists, with their bravery. Nazi leaders agreed to some concessions and more factories joined the strike, causing a 48-hour shutdown. Tram workers in Genoa went on strike soon thereafter, and pretty soon strikes spread to smaller towns around the Social Republic. Finally, Communist Party leaders coordinated a big strike in several factories around Milan, 
leading the Nazis to send an SS man to sort out the situation. The general brought in armored cars and attempted to intimidate the workers, going to one factory and telling everyone who refused to work, quote, if you leave, you become enemies of Germany. They all left, and concessions were granted, although some activists were deported to concentration camps. Then, Genoa shipyards went on strike, leading to fighting with strikebreakers that claimed three workers' lives. In a reprisal, several fascists and Nazis were killed when a bomb was exploded at a joint dinner function. The Nazis responded by murdering seven hostages. As Mussolini's regime tightened the screws on offending journalists and patrons, the Nazis continued a scorched-earth policy, at one point on November 21st liquidating 130 men, women, and children from a village in the Abruzzi Mountains, who didn't evacuate fast enough. Anti-fascists assassinated the head of the fascist party in Milan on December 18th, bringing about a wave of reprisals against political detainees and the poorer districts of the city. During the funeral procession on December 20th, fascists began firing into the air and were fired upon by anti-fascists. As the story goes, the exchange of bullets lasted for thousands of rounds, but nobody was hurt in the end. That same day, Partisans blew up a bridge close to Rome and part of a nearby rail line. Four days later, partisans blew up a train viaduct, snarling rail traffic for over a year. A few days after that, partisans assassinated a fascist official in Bagnolo in Piano, leading to the fascist killing of escaped prisoners of war who had been recaptured. And then bigger actions started to happen, with 500 Nazis blown up in a train and the creation of better radio links to the Allies only increased effectiveness. While fascists struggled with Nazis and both struggled to maintain a grip on the Italian population, which seemed more eager to support the partisan struggle by the day, Mussolini's own house fell apart. His son-in-law, Count Ciano, who spoke against him during the resolution to remove him from power, would be put on trial for treason. Mussolini reunited with Ciano and mended fences, but mostly stood by while the trial went underway, offering platitudes to his daughter, Etta, who had committed herself to a mental institution while on a secret mission to retrieve her doomed husband's diaries. The diaries contained damning evidence of Germany's misdeeds against Italy, and when Etta was able to slip out of the clinic and obtain the diaries, she used them as blackmail to get the Nazis to help Chiano's escape. But the escape plan fell apart when Hitler learned about it, leaving Etta by a remote roadside in the middle of a cold night. With the help of a former lover, Emilio Pucci, Etta finally escaped to Switzerland in January, a day before the SS came to the clinic to arrest her. But Pucci wasn't so lucky. Falling into SS custody, he was brutally tortured for days, attempted to kill himself with a razor he smuggled in his underwear, and he was finally freed under the auspices of attempting to convince Etta to withhold the diaries from publication. As for Ciano, he and other members of the former Grand Council were sentenced to death. Ciano got a tablet of potassium cyanide from a friend to preempt the execution, but the pill turned out to be fake. Set up with five other convicted fascists against a firing squad of 30 on January 12th, Ciano met his painful death. The first volley of shots only killed one of the six, injuring four and totally missing the sixth. 
The final death came at the end of the militiaman's pistol. Mussolini wept bitterly on hearing the news, later remarking to his wife, Rachele, quote, From that morning I have begun to die. Rachele noted, He was like a sick man who still has the possibility of saving himself, but refuses and abandons himself to the current of his destiny. Two days later, Genoa workers struck, causing spreading agitation throughout the Social Republic. Lower-intensity agitation continued through February as Mussolini worked to socialize industry by bringing worker representation into management. But the initiative was ultimately rejected in a full-scale general strike across the Social Republic, including hundreds of thousands of workers. But the Civil War finally boiled over on March 23rd when partisans put 40 pounds of TNT into a trash bin along the route of a Nazi march through Rome. The explosion killed 32 immediately, and then partisans stepped out and threw grenades at the pile of bodies, while civilians came out and started shooting at the wounded Germans. When news of the massacre reached Hitler, he insisted the whole block be razed to the ground. Nazi command translated that into a less severe but still atrocious policy. Ten Italians for every German were to be killed. The fascists got the math wrong and actually murdered 335 Italians on accident in the bloody reprisal that followed. A six and a half hour orgy of killing that took place against restrained prisoners in the Ardeatine caves south of Rome. The Nazis who carried out the killing were themselves broken by the slaughter, and even Mussolini was distraught. But the authorities set a serious policy going into the summer of 1945 of mass reprisals of this type. The Committee of National Liberation even developed an assassination squad called Gruppi de Azione Patriotica, which targeted fascist officials, but also intellectuals like publisher Arthur Capelli and philosopher Giovanni Gentile. It was reported by mid-April that the partisans had assassinated 1,023 party members and 535 officers. Generally, the Gap shot officers at bars, blew up bars, liquor stores and trains, and destroyed antenna for radio stations. The reprisals didn't restrain the partisans, who saw the Nazis and fascists as accountable for their own actions, and indeed, Mussolini hated the reprisal system throughout the conflict. As for townsfolk, the partisans did commit many robberies, burglaries, acts of extortion, and even torture and murder. Some of the partisans were truly brave and heroic individuals who sacrificed greatly, while others were reactionaries who preferred Hitler but detested Mussolini, and still more were simply brigands and bandits. Some villagers would help them, but others of course feared them in part because the presence of partisans in the area might lead the Germans to slaughter the villagers all in unspeakable ways. There are too many such brutal events to count during this terrible period. Just in the spring, on April 13th, one person firing on Nazis from a window in Stia, a village in Tuscany, brought the Nazis to murder 45 women and children and every male resident over the course of five murderous days. 16,000 partisans were captured, killed, or wounded between September and May, and it was just getting started. Over the course of the summer, partisans would kill 5,000 Nazis, capturing or wounding some 25,000 more. 
On June the 4th, Rome was liberated by the Allies in incredibly successful operations that drove out the Nazis before they could destroy the city. The liberation was viewed by Kesselring as, quote, the birthday of an all-out guerrilla war, as partisans began to attack with far greater ferocity. Meanwhile, the king stepped aside and Badoglio resigned, paving the way for the hegemony of the Committee of National Liberation in the liberated territories. On June 21st, Mussolini created the Black Brigades to combat the partisans. Initially secret, these were in part actually a complete joke because they merely constituted every party member who wasn't in the military and was younger than 61 but older than 18. They lacked training and equipment and many dodged service, others abandoned the ranks in droves, and even joined the partisans. Their fighting skills were terrible, and the only reason they were feared was the incredibly horrible amount of torture and murder they inflicted on innocent people. One Black Brigade's leader was comic book tier evil. His name was Pietro Koch, and he was a massive drug dealer who himself consumed copious quantities of cocaine on a regular basis. He ran his own private torture center in Milan, utilizing the traditional blackshirt penalty of forcing a victim to drink motor oil, along with other cruelties. Even the fascist authorities thought the Koch squad was awful, and he was shown to have been taking orders from the Germans rather than the Italians, as well as running an entire drug-dealing operation through his squad. To break up the Koch squad, Mussolini used another terrorist anti-partisan force, which may have been equally evil, known as the Muti Legion, which we'll describe in a bit. But along with the anti-partisan black brigades, there was always the old-fashioned fascist secret police, who committed grave excesses whenever they could. In particular, the chief Mario Carita would feign sympathy for his victims, telling them that their suffering made him suffer. He would put out cigarettes on women's stomachs, do the usual things you hear about torturers doing, and he even got his daughters involved in the action. His reputation became so bad that even the SS came to investigate him. And I'll read from Ray Mosley's Mussolini, The Last 600 Days here to illustrate what they found. Dolman kicked open a door inside the building and they found themselves in a torture chamber with Carita and his half-naked mistress on one side of the room. From the walls hung bloody spikes and blood stained the floor and the walls. In the center of the room was a table with leather straps. Dolman and his men trained their guns on Carita and his lover and told them to explain what happened. In Florence, I am in command, Carita said. Referring to a man who had jumped from the window and died, he said, quote, This cowardly pig escaped too soon from the treatment he deserved. Can I offer you something to drink? Now, it's critical to note that the SS themselves were perhaps the worst of the lot. Major Walter Redder took the comic book villain aspect to a new level. He had commanded a force in Poland and lost a hand in the combat, so one of his hands was fake and he wore a black glove over it because of course he did. In just two days between September 28th and the 30th, he and his SS group slaughtered 1,830 civilians in the town of Marzaboto after a partisan group called Stella Rosa was found and destroyed in the vicinity in the single worst atrocity of the Civil War. Major Redder's force killed 3,000 altogether. 
His group's worst singular deeds include using barbed wire to strangle 53 men, burning entire towns to the ground with the residents killed in the fires, and in one case disemboweling pregnant women and placing the decapitated heads of their fetuses next to their corpse. They did the old-fashioned impaling technique on toddlers, murdered children without concern, and while they did all this, they would play organ music that they took along with them from place to place. Aside from those anti-partisan bands and the SS, the German army carrying out orders was heinous on any given day. On June 29th, the Nazis murdered 212 civilians in Val de Chiana and burned 100 houses after two soldiers were killed in a clash in that village. In Val Cecina, Germans killed 77 miners for interfering with their attempt to destroy the mines. The next month, Germans started hanging captured partisans openly in Turin and placing placards on the dead labeled saboteur and so on. Among the most feared anti-partisan forces were the Decima Mas troops, led by Junio Valerio Borghese, whose nickname was the Black Prince. We'll get into Borghese the next episode, but for these purposes, it's important to note that he had been a sort of daring submarine commander whose troops sometimes contributed to the atrocities. Intriguingly, Borghese was locked up by Mussolini who saw him as a threat, but ultimately the military convinced Il Duce that Decima Mas could be an asset. No fan of Mussolini, Borghese made deals with far-right partisans known as white partisans, many of whom were monarchists, in order to defend the northeast of Italy from encroaching Yugoslav partisans who obviously wanted to claim disputed territory for communist Yugoslavia. At this stage, while you had communist partisans effectively fighting Nazis and fascist blackshirts, you had far-right partisans teaming up with anti-partisan forces to fight Yugoslav partisans, You had demobbed Italian troops now fighting Nazis to avoid being sent to concentration camps. You had the SS committing horrific massacres along with the Nazi army and blackshirts. And you had the Allied forces fighting in bloody combat with the Axis forces. The war was so far out of Mussolini's hands that many suspected he was going to kill himself. In early August, the situation intensified greatly. An anti-fascist assassination squad attacked a food truck thinking German soldiers were there, but actually murdered a group of civilians. In response, the anti-partisan Muti Legion frog-marched 15 prisoners from a Milan jail and shot them right in the Piazzale Loreto in the middle of the city. Mussolini absolutely knew that this would be a disaster since the public execution of random prisoners in the middle of Milan would horrify the entire city to its soul. Il Duce himself started cataloging the atrocities in letters to his associates, presumably to try to absolve his conscience. The following month, another strike rocked Milan, as workers especially targeted arms production. The fascists attempted to make concessions, but their weakness was by now apparent. Meanwhile, Mussolini discovered that his mistress, Cloretta Petacci, had been photographing his letters and sending them to the Germans. In the disastrous fallout, his wife and Clara got into it, with the former prophetically telling Clara that partisans would kill her in Milan's Piazzale Loreto, where the 15 prisoners had been shot in August. In late November, 
Workers struck at 70 factories throughout Milan in a coordinated action that spread throughout the Social Republic. The grip of the partisans on Milan was so tight when Mussolini called 48 construction companies in to bid on reinforcing the defenses, only four showed up. And the directors of the two firms that got the job fled shortly thereafter due to credible threats. Mussolini believed that Hitler had secret weapons, which would ultimately turn the tide of the war once unfurled. But the Allies had already breached Germany's borders, and the war had penetrated the country at the start of 1945. Much to the Nazis' chagrin, Mussolini entertained a plan to have a fascist opposition party contend with the fascist party in elections, totally undermining the totalitarian nature of stated fascist doctrine. I guess the cognitive dissonance kind of got to him and he had a nervous breakdown in February. Yet Mussolini kept the faith, insisting in March 1945 that, get ready, quote, fascism cannot be canceled from the history of Italy. We have left traces in things and in the spirit of the Italians that are too profound to allow anyone to think that these people can combat and defeat our generations and our ideas that represent and will represent the life and future of the country. Cancel culture was indeed coming for Mussolini. A number of efforts to forge a separate peace with the Allies were undertaken by both Italian and German figures, with or without the knowledge of Mussolini or Hitler. Mussolini sort of knew about some of what was happening, but was also at this stage pretty erratic and exploded when he heard about it later. He knew the Allies were coming for him, but he believed he could make a glorious last stand at the border with Switzerland with 30,000 of his most loyal black shirts fending off the Allies in his own version of Thermopylae until Hitler could rescue him with the imagined secret weapons. He went to Milan on April 18th with his entourage and his mistress Claretta following him. The two made the final voyage further north on April 25th to Lake Como with a clutch of top fascist hierarchs. This was, indeed, the downfall of the fascist regime after 23 years. Instead of making decisive moves to either escape across the border or dig in for a last stand, however, they made kind of weird, lackadaisical trips, almost like tourists around the lake. It was obvious that Il Duce wasn't thinking clearly, and he spoke often of last days. Partisans heard about a German escort moving around these remote parts, around the lake, so they stopped Mussolini's convoy, which they discovered had a group of Italians riding along. They negotiated with the Germans that the Italians could stay with the partisans and the Germans could leave. Mussolini planned to hide out in the German convoy, wearing the uniform of a soldier and pretending to be drunk enough to sleep through a checkpoint. The ruse did not fool the partisans, who noticed him and took him into custody. Mussolini and Claretta were allowed to spend their final night together in a farmhouse. The next day, partisans woke them up, telling them they'd been freed. Mussolini believed them, but the car he was in stopped near a small cluster of villas in the middle of nowhere, and the driver turned to him to say, Your luck has run out. What happened next is the subject of some dispute, but what's known for certain is that Benito Mussolini was shot and killed with Claretta on April 28, 1945. 
The other hierarchs of the fascist regime were unceremoniously executed in a small town with shots in the back, a mark of dishonor in Italian culture, including Claretta's brother, Marcello, a controversial figure implicated in currency scams. Their bodies were brought back to the Piazza Loreto in Milan, the same public square in which 15 prisoners had been executed by the Muti Legion the previous August. Raquel's prophecy had come true. Claretta wasn't killed in the Piazzale Loreto, but her body ended up there nevertheless. A mob of people surrounded the corpses, defiling them in all manner of ways. Covered in spit and urine, Mussolini's skull was completely crushed, with his eyeball falling out of its socket, before the people strung him up by his feet in the historic pose of infamia. Mussolini had gained power after urging socialists to join the nationalist cause for solidarity with the war effort in 1914, breaking out of World War I as a hero who led the people of Italy to glory and could defeat the factionalism and chaos within the left by restoring Italy to the prestige and glory of the Roman Empire. He left power and life a puppet of the vicious Nazi state, fully conscious that, in his words, he had, quote, ruined Italy. Over the next 25 years, Italian society struggled to rebuild, with the remnants of Mussolini's Italian Social Republic regrouping through a new party called the Italian Social Movement. Many of the pencil pushers who populated the fascist regime stayed in their positions throughout the process, as did police prefects and esteemed members of the university system. Italy's defeat had been total, but efforts on one side to recapture the myth of fascist glory and on the other to finally purge Italy of its fascist legacy would intensify with the generation born after the war. Raised on the legends of the heroic resistance or the betrayed fascist state, these kids reached adulthood at the end of the 1960s with idealized images of their own political protagonism, hoping to fulfill the roles and expectations of their parents as they fought each other in the desperate street battles, bombing campaigns, and targeted assassinations of the years of lead. Music 